0: Lord, as we recall the Ninevites to whom you sent Jonah to preach the gospel, we were told that they did not know their right hand from their left. Many who go about life today who are lost and without hope and without you, and yet you have given us the truth of your word. We thank you that by it we are instructed in the way of everlasting, of what eternal life is in Jesus Christ. And of what the blessed life is in obedience to you. I pray now that you would instruct us more fully. So that we might be more faithful to you. In Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage is Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6. And you'll find that on page 61 of the Pew Bible. And then I'm also going to read from Exodus chapter 32 verses 1 through 8. Last week as we started... Looking at the commandments, I said verse, uh, the first commandment is the most important. And if you get it wrong, everything else in life will be wrong. But if you get it right, then everything else begins to line up. And if our choice is to serve the only true God, the God of the Bible, then the natural question is, well, how do I do that? What does it look like? And that's really the point of the second commandment to describe for us how we ought to worship God. And keep my commandments and from Exodus chapter 32, we read when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him. Up, make us gods who shall go before us as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters And bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And they received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Following a worship service, a woman came out of the sanctuary and she was talking to the pastor and she was full of excitement and she said, I think that was the greatest worship experience I've ever had in my life. The pastor was pleased by that and he said, I'm so thankful to God that you're encouraged and you had such a wonderful worship experience. But I have a question for you. What do you think God... Thought of that worship service. She had a bit of a surprised look on her face. She's never thought about that before. And he asked the question, What do you think God thought of that worship service? And she said, Well, I don't really know. I never even thought about that question. The reality is that we, to use a sort of modern psychological term, are very egocentric in the way in which we approach worship. In other words, we're in it for ourselves. We Look forward to getting things out of it ourselves. And while worship is certainly for our benefit, we are blessed by God whenever we join together and worship Him rightly. The reality is worship is primarily for Him. It's primarily for God, not primarily for us. In fact, you might say the greatest pleasure that we should get in worship is glorifying God, honoring Him. Praising His name. Giving to Him the adoration that He so greatly deserves. As I said, the first commandment is the most important and it tells us who we ought to worship. We should worship God alone. The second commandment comes along and regulates how we ought to worship the one true God. And the reason being is because our hearts bent by sin, distorted by sin, corrupted by sin, tend to want to make worship about ourselves about what pleases us and yet what we should be most concerned about is what is acceptable to god the writer of hebrews says it this way chapter 12 verse 28 let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe acceptable worship acceptable to whom to god that's who it should be primarily acceptable to God himself, and so we need to ask the question, what is acceptable worship? Well, the commandment tells us what acceptable worship is, and the first thing is acceptable worship forbids images of God. Look in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water above under the earth that's the sea from the perspective of the israelite the sea was below the land so he's saying nothing in all of creation should serve as a representative for god and go beyond that he tells us the reason verse 5 you shall not bow down to them or serve them we're not to represent god in any physical fashion and bow down and serve that image that icon That representation of Him in any way. Now, certainly it's true that the Lord has commanded His people to be artistic in the way in which they have gone about preparing, for instance, the tabernacle and the temple. In Exodus chapter 31, you can read very clearly how God gifted men so that they could create the kinds of things that He wanted for the tabernacle. God is not against art. He's not against beauty. But what God does not want and tells us explicitly in the commandment is that He is not to be represented by something in creation. And we are not to bow down and worship it. In the ancient world and still today, there are gods who are represented in physical form and some kind of divine power ascribed to that object. A few examples. You might remember from the Gospels how the woman who had been suffering for, I believe, 12 years with some some type of illness, as Jesus approached, she thought to herself, if I can just touch His robe, there will be power in His robe, this physical garment. If I could just touch it, I will be healed. And of course, she was healed because it was really her faith in Him. that Jesus was so gracious, He would heal her but her thinking was there's some power in this physical object. Or today we have good luck charms. I would say probably many of us here today have had at least one good luck charm at some point in life. Something that we held on to and we sort of felt like it brought us good luck or good fortune. You look at baseball players and they put on the rally caps, right? During playoff season or during the World Series They're all in the dugout. They've got their hats turned inside out and they're put on top of their head. Why? They're hoping that there's some kind of magic in it. We're superstitious people. My grandmother was a Christian, but she was also Irish. And if there was a black cat that came across the road, we were driving miles out of our way to avoid that black cat. We have some sense that there's power vested in a physical object remember seeing on the news a number of years ago that someone had toasted a piece of bread and when it came out of the toaster what looked like an image of Jesus on that piece of toast captivated them they were so excited of course it looked like california surfer jesus more than any kind of man from palestine but they were convinced that there was some power in this piece of toast qualities of a deity are thought to be collected and channeled in a physical object. Sort of just like our bodies have our souls dwelling within them, that the deity actually dwells in this image, this graven image. It's the very thing that happens in Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf. We're told in verse 4 that Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool And made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Here's what's taking place there. They've made a physical representation of the Lord Almighty who brought them out of Egypt. And they're about to have a feast to the Lord. And when they do, they're going to bow down before the golden calf. And they're going to worship the Lord through the calf. As if God is somehow being channeled into this piece of uh, formed and graven gold. That somehow His power, His divinity, His almighty presence is there. And yet what the Scriptures tell us very, very clearly is that God cannot be contained in anything in all of creation. First Kings chapter 8 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The temple cannot hold God. The golden calf cannot hold God. No physical representation can hold God. But beyond the fact that He cannot be contained in some object, the problem lies in the fact that no physical object can represent the fullness of who God is. That's the reason God gave the commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. So at Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, He says you've never saw my form you never saw my shape why is that beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure he's saying you cannot represent me with any physical object because that physical object can never express the fullness of who I am God is infinite. He is infinite in love. He is infinite in mercy. He is infinite in righteousness and holiness. Nothing that we could ever devise will ever show forth the majesty and glory of who God is. You ever wonder why a golden calf? Why not a mouse or a horse? Well, in Egypt, the bull or the calf was worshipped as a symbol of strength and power. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They wanted a physical representation of the fact that they had been taken out in power and delivered from Egypt. God is the incomprehensible one. He is infinite. He cannot be fully comprehended. And that's why Paul, in the book of Acts, warns the Athenians... The divine being cannot be represented by gold or any physical object. Nothing in all the world can show forth who He is. Every physical representation that we would make would be but a caricature of God. you ever been walking down the street or been at a a fair or a carnival and there's one of those artists there who draws caricatures? And after a few minutes, they turn the picture around and show you and you sort of wince a bit Are my ears really that big? Do my eyes really bulge out like that? Anything that we could ever devise would be but a caricature of who He is. You see, it defames Him. It degrades Him. It trivializes who He is. It reduces Him. Philip Ryken in his book on the Ten Commandments says it this way, An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes Him exactly opposite of what He really is. Now, this wasn't just a problem for ancient Israel. All throughout church history, in fact, in various branches of Christianity, Images, icons, representations of God, of the saints, have been included in worship. Beyond that, if we look at our culture today, our culture is really coming out of the modernist movement which sought to separate God out of everything. All things can be explained by science. All things come to their root in humanity. We are the sum of everything. What's happened is is that when you explain everything away by science, or at least you attempt to, there's no mystery left in life. There's no transcendence. And so even non-Christians have turned away from that modernist perspective, the scientific perspective, to paganism. Paganism is the idea that nature and the divine are so intertwined that the worship of nature is the worship of God. And because need, people need something to worship, they've gone back to actually worshiping nature as a form of worshiping the deity. Still alive in our day and age, but you know most of us here don't have a, an idol on our shelf at home. We don't have a representation of God. But the commandment gets to the heart of things, to the real core issue, and the core issue is what's going on in the human heart that motivates people to make physical images. One thing is this. People want to bring God near. People want to bring God close. That's what, part of what was taking place in Exodus chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, they gathered themselves together and said, up, Make us gods that shall go before us." Moses is nowhere to be found. Where is the God who brought us out of Egypt? See, what they're trying to do is bring God close in some physical form. And the idea behind the commandment is, God has already come. He's as close as He possibly could be. He dwells in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is alive and well and He is here today, He could not be any closer. And yet it happens all the time. I heard uh, from a girl who went to a large gathering of young uh, Christian believers. It was sort of a Christian Woodstock, you might say. And in this gathering of thousands of Christians who were worshiping the Lord, one Side of this gathering, all of a sudden appeared this large wooden cross, maybe ten or twelve feet long, and people began passing it around and As it got closer, she said, "I felt this need to reach out and touch, it I had to grab hold of it. There was something that was compelling me to do it because she wanted to be connected to God, and the idea of having God in a visible form as a way for us to draw him." Closer, and yet the promise for those who wait in faith is that one day we will see God in all of his glory. But The desire to bring close is really desire to have God in a form that we can handle. And that gets to the second thing here. Is it not only do we want to bring God near to us, but we want to bring God under our control. Exodus 32 one says these gods shall go up before us brings to mind the fact that the Israelites, when they were fighting against the Philistines, said, bring the ark forward. We'll take the ark and we'll bring it out in battle. We will force the Lord to go out before us and He will conquer our enemies. they are trying to control God. God, we're going to force Him to go up before us into the land of Canaan. And He will be the one to win our battles. The simple thought is this. If we can reduce God to something we can handle, we can make Him serve us. We can manipulate Him. We can control Him. Sort of like an electrical transformer that steps down the power from the power grid before it comes into our house. Now all of a sudden we've got something we can handle with much less risk. Instead of worshiping the true God as He is, We worship Him as we want Him to be. It's very easy to erect false images of God in our hearts and in our minds. False mental pictures of who God is. You can have a feminist God who's actually female, who promotes the feminist agenda. You can have a God of love who does not judge sin and He lets you do whatever you want to do in life. You can have the American God. God's the God of Americans, right? And He blesses Americans. There's the God who sanctions my views of politics or economics and the way in which I want to use my money and my view of culture. There's the scapegoat God. I don't ever talk to Him. I don't have anything to do with Him. But when something goes wrong, He is my scapegoat and I will be angry at Him. I will blame Him for what goes on. There's the legalistic God. The God who says, run faster, push more weight, do more, be more righteous, then I will love you. There's the intellectual God. The God of theology, but not a God of love. And there's the emotional God. My God is a God of feelings. I don't need any of that theology stuff. There's the traditional God who likes traditional music. The contemporary God who likes contemporary music. You see, we can fashion God in any way we so please with our own mental images. But in worship, we're not permitted to have God our way, but rather God is to have His way with us. Did you get that? We're not permitted to have God our way, but rather we're to have God have His way with us. We're to say, Lord, teach me who You are. We see the reason for all this in verse 5 of chapter 20. He says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He's zealous for His own name's sake. He's zealous for His own glory. He will not give it to anything else. He will not be reduced He will not be misrepresented by anything. And so He calls upon us to see Him truly as He is. So the commandment tells us not only what's forbidden, but it gives us another principle for corporate worship, and that's this. Acceptable worship is defined by God's Word. Acceptable worship is defined by God's Word. Now prior to the historic Reformation... Worship in the Christian churches had been corrupted according to man's design. And the principle was basically this. If God has not forbidden it, I am free to do it in worship. If God has not explicitly forbidden it, I am free to do it in worship. Modern example today. Maybe you've seen in the news, if you would like to, you can take your pet to a worship service and have your pet blessed. God doesn't forbid that in worship. Therefore, we are free to do it, is the mindset. but That's not the way the commandment works. Only what God has commanded is permitted. Jesus said that true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. In other words, according to what he has declared in his word to be right and true. The reformers of the Reformation came along and called this the regulative principle. In other words, God regulates worship. He defines what true worship is. He tells us who He is and how He is to be praised. And we should let His Word define for us what worship is. Now, we don't have time this morning to explore all of that But one central activity of worship that God commands is the preaching of the Word. And it's important for our understanding of the second commandment because it is the preaching of the Word that gives us a right picture of who God is. It's the right preaching of the Word that corrects our false mental images of who God is or what we long him to, for Him to be in our hearts. And so we need the preaching of the Word to define for us, here's who the Lord Almighty is and how He is to be worshipped. You know, sometimes we make God in our own image as a result of just not knowing who He is. Sometimes people are raised in homes that are maybe perfectionistic. And they look upon God as a perfectionistic God who demands perfection and there is no grace when we fail. In fact, we're ridiculed for our failure. And therefore, God must be a God who ridicules His people when they fail. We grow up with this faulty image of who He is. Sometimes our faulty images come from the fact that we're unwilling to just accept who He is. Maybe we're unwilling to accept the fact that He is almighty and sovereign over our lives. That He determines what's right and wrong. And if I'm unwilling to accept that, then I have a faulty image of who He is. And yet it's the preaching that begins to correct all of those things. Corrects our mental images. Corrects our images of who God is, who we are, who the world is. And what it really does, worship defines for us what reality is. It defines reality. We're not here just going through a liturgy of things. We're doing something that defines what all of life is about. We're doing something that defines who the Almighty God is because He's revealed it to us in His Word. We're revealing things that are or we're doing things that reveal to us who we are as people. Just think of it this way if worship is designed to entertain then the way in which I approach reality is I'm here to be entertained and I will go places and I will do things that entertain me and when they're not entertaining me I will leave and I will go other places that entertain me right worship reminds me that there is a sovereign God who reigns in a world that seems like it's given over to chaos you know what it's like in your life to feel as though all things are just out of hand I can't control anything And yet when I come here and the Lord calls me into His presence and we sing of His almighty sovereignty, I'm reminded of the fact He controls every atom of the universe. Nothing is outside of His sovereignty. Right? Worship defines who I am. Because when I come into worship, it reminds me I'm a creature. I've been made in the image of God. He's made me for Himself. I find my happiness in Him and yet I've sinned against Him the Lord Jesus Christ has come to pay for my sins, and by faith in Him alone I have salvation. My sins are taken away, and I'm called upon now as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to seek first His kingdom. Worship defines what's real, and we're to come into worship. Not according to our own imaginations or to do things however we feel, but the way God says it ought to be done because He defines reality. And He wants worship to glorify Him and define what's really true. Finally, right worship points us also to Jesus. We actually have been given an image of God, it's Christ. Jesus declared, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. To worship God is to put Jesus central in our life. He is the only true God that we are to worship. And we come to the Lord through him. Friends, we don't need a faulty image of God We don't need a reduced God. We don't need a small God, a weak God. We need an almighty, powerful God. We need One like Christ who can calm the storm. We need One like Jesus who can be victorious over death, and Satan, and sin, and come out of the grave. We need a Jesus who will come back for us in glory. We need a Jesus who can satisfy our souls for all of eternity. That's the God that we need, and we need to let the preaching of the Word define God for us. One last thing here. Acceptable worship forbids images of God. It also says that it ought to be defined by God's Word. But lastly, this. Acceptable worship leaves a lasting legacy. It leaves a lasting legacy. Look in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 20. He says you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's both a serious warning and a great promise that's given here with this commandment. And the warning is in verse 5, that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me here's the fruit of idolatry the fruit of false worship and the fruit is that it's passed on from one generation to the next so that not only does the father hate god but he passes it along to his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren but the promise is wonderful showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thousands of generations. It's amazing to think about. In other words, you might say grace reaches further than judgment. God extends His grace down through the ages to those who will give themselves to right worship of Him. I mean, I, I think God must have included this, both this warning and this promise specifically to fathers. Father's. Because fathers might not think much about how that impacts them, but as they think about their little boy and little girl, or grandson and granddaughter, they begin to think twice. What am I doing today that's going to affect those little ones? Am I seriously worshiping God and leading my family to know Him in worship? A heart for worship should be passed down from generation to generation. It's the greatest heritage we could ever give. More than money or a beach house. It's a lasting legacy. One that lasts for all of eternity. So what are a father and mother to do? Well, first you could say simply leading your family to corporate worship on Sunday with the people of God. Preparing your family for worship. Maybe reading the scripture of the sermon ahead of time. But even beyond that, there's family worship. Family worship. Now I know that there are lots of obstacles to family worship. Where families gather together regularly and read and pray and sing to the Lord. You know, sometimes just something as simple as there's food on the stove that's burning. There's a barking dog next door. There's children who can't sit still. There's parents who are lazy. There's unavoidable emergency that comes along. There's lots of obstacles. And perfection is something that we'll never attain in this life, but we want to make progress in it. Because what we want is for our children to grow up in a home that is energized by true worship and a heart for the Lord. So there should be regular times of devotion and worship, of singing, of Bible reading, of asking questions, of extended prayer. Let me give you some practical considerations you might want to take a book of the bible or a particular theme and read through it with your family memorize scripture or a catechism you could also read through church history there's wonderful little books today that are put out there for children in particular that show forth what it looks like to live life faithfully before the lord in little short stories so that they get a glimpse and are inspired to live for the lord themselves maybe it's even christian fiction Reading through Pilgrim's Progress. You can learn hymns and songs together. You can act out scenes of the Bible. You can focus on a moral problem. Something that somebody in the family is struggling with. A characteristic of God that is needed. Maybe a child is afraid and needs to hear of the loving sovereignty of their Heavenly Father. Or maybe the Great Commission. how We're all called to go out into the world and make disciples could explore the sermon and application that goes along with it for the children's sermon you can learn to pray through the lord's prayer different parts of it you can learn to pray scripture with your children you could even learn to praise god and focus on a particular attribute of the lord and teach your children here is how we lift up god for being a patient god patient with us So many things that you can do and be creative with. We need to teach our children and grandchildren that right worship is central to life. And begin to establish a right view of reality. of Who God is. Who we are. What life in this world is all about. Well, we need to finish. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray... We come to You and pray and plead that our mental images of You would be informed by Your Word. That our desire would be to worship the true God of the Bible. And that we would do so according to what You have said in Your Word that we ought to do. Give us all a heart for worshiping You. And energize our families to be sanctuaries, You might say, for Your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.